Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the day, for the time together tonight. And uh, even though we don't have your word before us and we're not going verse by verse for studying the history of the church, we pray that you would be honored in what we learn and that you would teach us what we need to know going forward, that the past is the key to the future. The mistakes of the past are not to be made in the present. Uh, may you teach us that. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's take a look. Review of some past names. Paul, Peter, Andrew, John, four of the 12 apostles. We see that their lives intersect with the uh, what we call the early church fathers below the timeline there. Uh, late in the, uh, or early I should say in the second century, we know Clement of Alexandria. Uh, Ignatius of, uh, not of Loyola, came much later, but this is Ignatius of Antioch. Polycarp of Smyrna, Smyrna and Papias. Also they overlap with other church uh, leaders or church fathers, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, Cyprian. Uh, we, these overlap with people like Anthony. Anthony was uh, uh, one of the first desert fathers, lived out in the desert. We know about him because of Athanasius. He's listed right there under Eusebius. And then we've got that big red line there, Constantine's Edict of Milan. Because prior to that, prior to that red line, all these people prior to that uh, suffered Intensely, sometimes very intensely, sometimes with their own lives for being Christian. The Edict of Milan was after Constantine had become emperor and began to tolerate Christianity. It wasn't necessarily legal at this point, but it was tolerated and no longer did it did, were Christians um, condemned for simply being Christians. Uh, we have the church councils. Quit, this is just a quick review. The Council of Nicaea, whereby it was come to under, be understood that Jesus is the same substance of God. Not, uh, not of a same kind or similar. He is homo... Oosios, not oisios. Remember, it's a diphthong. Ooh, not oi. Yeah, very good on the front row here. <laughs> Ooh, Jesus is the same substance of God. That's what the Council of Nicaea was. In 381, the Council of Constantinople, it condemned Apollinarianism, saying that Jesus is truly human, whereas Apollinarianism said he's not human. Human was swallowed up by the divine. Uh, this particular council realized that Jesus was truly human and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and birthed by Mary. The council of Ephesus in 431 condemned another one, Nestorius, who claimed that Jesus was two distinct persons. The council of Chalcedon 20 years later in 451 condemned monophysitism, uh, concluding that Jesus had two natures, human and divine. So he's not two persons, Jesus has two natures. He is both human and and divine in his nature. And then the second council of Constantinople in 553, again contemned monophysitism. Mono, that's just a great word, isn't it? Monophysitism. Um, condemned it again because it didn't go away. Neither did Arianism from the Council of Nicaea. And we'll see that reappear not only in our, our uh, lecture tonight, but in the modern day when people knock at your door and they're from the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they are Arians. Same thing, it never, didn't go away even though Constantine banished them. Some noteworthy people up to this point. We've seen Constantine, Eusebius of Caesarea, Athanasius, Ambrose, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, Jerome, Augustine of Hippo, and John Chrysostom. By the way, Chrysostom is not necessarily the last name. It, it's a word that means the golden-mouthed. So John the golden-mouthed, he was a preacher. And then we'll, tonight we'll look at Pope Leo. I know, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and then Gregory the Great, who is Gregory the First. These are the two, these two men distinguished uh, what, what being a pope is and what it has become.
In the fall of Rome, in A.D. 410, the Roman Empire had become divided uh, around 313, 325-ish. Between 313 and 325, Constantine moved to the old Byzantium Empire, which is modern Istanbul. And he named it the city of Constantine, hence Constantinople. That became Rome's headquarters. It was no longer the city of Rome where the emperor reigned, like in the days of Augustus and uh, Tiberius and Caligula and Trajan and Hadrian. No longer there in Rome. He's moved east. The city of Rome, after 800 years without an emperor. By the way, there were emperors that stayed in the west. They were puppets to the one in the east. The city of Rome, after 800 years, was invaded by Germanic tribes or barbarians. Barbarians is an onomatopoeia. It's a bad word, really, to call anybody because it means you're just a dumb idiot. Uh, barbarian, the ba 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 sounds like you are, are stuttering. You can't talk. Uh, and even though these tribes, we'll look at them tonight, invaded the land, they weren't stuttering idiots. They, uh, they might have been brutish, but they were uh, intelligent people. But they're called barbarians, the barbarian invasions of Rome. They had been migrating south into the Roman Empire or near the Roman Empire for decades, seeking farmland in the empire. And as Rome is growing weaker and weaker, especially with its power and muscle being in the east... They're going to finally make their way in. In A.D. 410, the unthinkable occurred. The city of Rome fell to the Goths. Now, when you think of Goths, you think of people dressed strangely, black hair and weird. And they like to be Gothic. Well, the Goths weren't that way. It wasn't a bunch of strange teenagers coming in with bad tattoos running through the city. But it was a dark age, part of what's called the Dark Ages. And so hence, you know, when it comes down to the, to the present day, Gothicism, uh, Goths are, are just... They paint themselves dark. They look dark. So in AD 410, uh, the Goths invaded Rome. Uh, there's no one in there to really stop them. These barbarian tribes, this is a quick overview slide. In 376, the Huns invaded Europe. They didn't come into to, um, to Rome until 451, 452. But the Huns invaded Europe. Not quite sure where the Huns are from. From the far east. In 410, the Visigoths sacked Rome. The Visigoths are going to be from the east, and the Ostrogoths, I'm sorry, Visigoths are from the west, and the Ostrogoths are going to be from the, from the east. You got that? Are you already going to sleep? <laughs> Hang with me. What is an Ostrogoth? It, it's, it's a goth from the, from the east. <laughs> All of these are Germanic peoples. Um, it's believed that they came from what was modern-day Sweden. It's believed. They're trying to track these people. They weren't real literate in the sense that they're writing everything down like Julius Caesar did. But what's known about him is that they came from the, from the far north, uh, from at least thought to be from modern Sweden. All these tribes are going to come down, come together, and they're coming into, you know, the, the, the great part of the world is Rome. It's Rome and the empire. Uh, it's, it's like coming from a camping trip into a, a, a huge futuristic city. And the land is developed as well. The Vandals uh, came from Gaul to Spain in 439. They came through Rome as well. Attila the Hun in 451. He's going to meet Leo I in Rome, one of the popes. And Leo's going to go out and talk to him. And he's going to calm him down. And Leo's going to be thought of, as very, thought of very highly for his uh, diplomatic relations with Attila the Hun. The emperor in the West was later replaced in 476 by Germanic barbarians. Um, so there becomes an emperor. You'll see, well, there's an emperor in the West, the West meaning Rome, but they're always puppets to the emperor in the East. They're really not, not much of anything. That's why you don't know much about them. Yeah, we... Yeah, there were ice ages, but it might have been purging them from, from certain areas of the north. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, the Ostrogoths from the east entered Rome in 489. That's different than the Visigoths. The Lombards entered Rome in 568. And the Franks, we know as the French today, they went to France. The Angles and Saxons invaded England. Thank God. Got to love the Angles and Saxons, right? And the Jutes. So when you look at the barbarian invasions, you've got the barbarians up in the north here. That the, the green there signifies the, what we would know as the Roman Empire. Uh, when it moved east, at least when the capital city moved east, you had the Greek-speaking ones. It remained, they remained Greek. They began to be speak Greek. That was the language. In the west, it was a different culture. It was Latin-speaking. So the west, you've got Italy. You can see the Italian boot there. Uh, the barbarians in the north. The Roman Empire, very powerful empire for a while. The Huns make their way from the east, move west. The Visigoths become refugees in a part of the Roman Empire, and then decide to make their way down. They make their way down into various parts of the east. And in the east, they're chased out. So they go back, and you can see that, that arrow moves them into Rome, and that's A.D. 410. And so now the Goths have come into Rome. This is a huge event in the history of the world, where this great, mighty empire of 800 years in Rome has not been touched, is now being invaded, uh, and is no longer going to be Roman. And what we'll see over the course of this time period is that Latin-speaking area that's Roman becomes barbarian in the sense that it's no longer uh, what it once was and the east remains the Roman Empire. So you're going to have all kinds of different people groups in the west and where the Greek-speaking part will remain the same. Uh, Rome, in order to deal with the, uh, the issue of the Goths, will withdraw its troops from England. That's going to leave that place wide open to be invaded, and it does. It is. The Goths eventually move down to what is today Spain, Irish raiders, remember, everybody knows St. Patrick, right? Uh, you know, St. Patrick was actually an Englishman. You may have, you may have thought he was, he was Irish. He was actually captured by the Irish. He was taken as a slave into Ireland. He escaped Ireland, went back to, to England, and went, went to England, and then went back to, I still went back to Ireland to preach the gospel. He escaped to return home. Later, he returned to Ireland as a missionary in 432. Augustine of Hippo. Uh, I, I, we're going to be introduced tonight to one I call Augustine. It's just the way I separate the two. Augustine, the great theologian, I call him Augustine. He is of the, he was the Bishop of Hippo, which is a town in North Africa. We're going to meet Augustine later, at least the man I call Augustine. You can call him both Augustine or both Augustine. I just changed the emphasis on the wrong syllable so that I can understand in my own history of the church. So, but Augustine, he wrote the City of God, and this was to help people deal with the fall of Rome. It was a major issue. What has happened? Where's God? Does God not love us anymore? Of course, the pagans thought God, uh, the gods are against us because the Christian God has come in. And so he writes the city of God. According to Augustine, there are two realms that seem to mingle on the earth, the city of God and the city of mankind. God's reign cannot ultimately be identified with any human regime. Note that God's reign cannot, I agree with this, cannot be identified with any human regime. We like to think that. We like to vote for our candidate and say, he's with God. God's with him or her. But that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's not true at all. The city of mankind will fall, but only God's reign in his people's hearts will remain. This is the city of God in a nutshell. So I just saved you 1,200 pages right there. Now, now you, you deprive yourself of a really good read if you don't read the city of God. John Chrysostom is in the east. Augustine was in the West, 
And Chrysostom, this golden-mouthed preacher, while the West struggled against the barbarians, Bishop John struggled to purify the churches in Constantinople. Uh, so churches then were what they are today. There's always some corruption, and with, all, with the way Christianity had just become overlaid upon mankind at the time. Everybody's a Christian now. If you, Constantine's our emperor, everybody's a Christian. Well, that, that doesn't make for good Christians. And John did his best uh, to preach the truth. His preaching was so eloquent, he became known as Golden Mouth or Chrysostom. So the Ostrogoth invasion, this has just opened the door to all the different Germanic tribes in the north. They're going to make their way down into the Roman Empire. The Ostrogoths, uh, from the east, they're going to come down, and they're also going to invade in 489. They're going to make their way down into North Africa from there and settle there. Now the people groups are changing quite a bit. The Burgundian invasion in 568, they come down into what's France today. And then the Franks. The Franks will become uh, more of a defender of the Roman Pope. In fact, who was the great defender of the Roman Pope around 800? Anybody know? One of the greatest names in all of history. Charlemagne. There you go. Charles the Great. The Anglo-Saxon invasion. Because when Rome left there, you know, that if you've been to England or if you've seen movies, you see that, that uh, I think it was Hadrian that built the wall. wall basically bordered the Roman Empire, what was the only Roman Empire in England. And then the rest was just wherever, you know, just out in the middle of nowhere. Well, these invaded that area. The Anglo-Saxons, Jutes, made their way into England. Once the empire, once the Romans left, I should say, in 449, Attila the Hun, Attila the Hun made his way down in in 451, 452, makes his way from the east, and he was a mighty warrior. Uh, Pope Leo, here's a snapshot someone took back in that day of, of uh, Leo I meeting with Attila the Hun. 452, Leo, also known as Leo the Great, convinced Attila the Hun not to destroy Rome. He didn't push him back and say, you can't come in. He just essentially said, look, we're all living fine here. Why destroy something that's beautiful? Come in and take over. But I'm the religious leader of the day. And they, Leo became a hero here at this point. And he is, remember, when, once the emperor has left, the only one guiding Rome at all, the only one guiding the western part of the empire would be the religious leader of the day. Now, back then, it wasn't pope. Not the way we look at the pope today. Uh, I've got a slide later to talk about it, but just for now, Papa is the word Pope means. All it is, it's just a word for the bishop of, the, of a church. There's Papas and Popes all over the empire. It's just that this one will become the most prominent because it's Rome. So if we were to summarize these barbarian invasions, Justo Gonzalez says this, <clears throat> excuse me, from the 5th to the 8th century, Western Europe was swept by a series of invasions. They brought chaos to the land. The invaders brought with them the two religious challenges that until then could have seemed to have been a matter of the past, both paganism and Arianism. Eventually, both pagans and Arians were converted to the faith of those whom they had conquered. In other words, as they're making their way down into the empire, they get converted to Christianity. That's a good thing. This was the Nicene faith. Also called Orthodox or Catholic faith. That's why when you grew up Methodist or, or Lutheran and you recited the Apostles' Creed or a creed and it said, and I believe in the Holy Catholic faith, and you're, you're too afraid to ask, why are we believing in the Holy Catholic faith when we don't go to the Catholic Church? It just means you're reciting the Orthodox Creed of what Orthodox Christianity is. In the process of their conversion and also in the effort to preserve the wisdom of ancient times, two institutions will play a central role 
in what becomes of civilization. It's monasticism and the papacy. So the barbarian kingdoms, here's who they are. Here's what happens after they all settle. You've got the Angles up in, uh, and that's where our word English comes from, Anglican. You've got the Franks, the Burgundians, the Visigoths, the Lombards. All of this remains distinct from what is now the Roman Empire in the east. The European languages that come about, you've got Italian, of course, Spanish, Romanian, used to the old Dacian Empire, you've got, or Dacian territory, I should say, French, German, Dutch, English. But it's Greek-speaking in the east. So all kinds of a hodgepodge of peoples over here to the left, and one particular Roman Empire in the east. And that's what, when people say, well, when was the fall of Rome? There really is no good answer. Um, there's a couple answers that might get you through on a test, but uh, if, if you have a... Uh, What's, what's one of those tests? Multiple choice. Where it says, says uh, did Rome fall in 410? Did Rome fall in 476? Did Rome fall in 1453? And it doesn't say all the above? You're in trouble. You're just going to have to figure out what did my teacher say in the lecture prior to this? Because it fell on all those dates and others. So you've got these Orthodox churches, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches. All of these churches become the Roman Catholic Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church is over here, so you put them all together, Roman Catholic Church. This is what becomes. And, that's, and back then, by the way, Roman Catholic Church, don't equate with what the Roman Catholic Church is today with what it was back in these days. Uh, it's changed monumentally. It's just essentially the Orthodox faith, the Nicene Creed, and then the Eastern Orthodox Churches on the right. So it's a hodgepodge here. They're similar in belief, but there's a lot mixed in with that Roman Catholic Church. There's a lot of Arianism going on. Now, is Arianism compatible with Christianity? Well, let's, let's be a little bit more definitive. One says Jesus is God, and one says Jesus is not God. It, it's not a not really. It's a absolutely not. Yet, Arians are called Christians throughout the empire. So you've got a whole bunch of people calling themselves Aryan Christians and people being converted to Aryan Christianity. When we get to monasticism, <clears throat> we get to this man named Benedict. Benedict, now, monasticism we looked at in the past in the West, I'm sorry, in the East, uh, became something that Christians wanted to go out into the desert and practice uh, being persecuted. They wanted to practice suffering because they were no longer suffering as Christians in the East. Christianity is legal. So they went out into the desert. They deprived themselves. They found caves to live in. Uh, they deprived themselves of food. They didn't take any money. But Benedictine monasticism in the West will be different. And it becomes, even though no matter what you think of, of monks, of the Benedictine persuasion, maybe not today, but what it, when they started off, these people preserved Christianity. These men preserved it, and the women, because they were uh, nunneries as well. Benedict is the founder of the community of Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino was a place, it was just a podunk town. There was nothing around. Uh, and so he, I'm going over there. There was paganism still there. He went in there, and he said, we're going to start our monastery here in 529. And he set forth what's called the rule. I put rules, but it's the rule. And it's a bunch of different ones. Here's a couple of them. Physical labor, vows of obedience, chastity, poverty, and stability, which means no moving around from one monastery to the next. He created stability in one. Gathering eight times a day to pray. Anyone know in Scripture where that might be? It's actually in Psalm 119, 
where David says, I, I rise up seven times a day to, to praise you. And then he says, and I get up at midnight to do it again. Seven, midnight, eight times. A little hyper-literal, but uh, <clears throat> uh, that's what they did. Eight times a day to pray and read scripture and other Christian books, it says. And they had these traditional hours of prayer. The good thing is as it spread and evolved, monks became teachers, copyists of ancient manuscripts, druggists, agriculturalists, and missionaries. In other words, these people preserved the scripture for us. Uh, They were the ones teaching. They were the ones learning and going around in an otherwise illiterate society, learning, keeping uh, uh, their relationship with Christ and going out and spreading it. Benedictine monks. So the other one is the rise of the papacy. People always want to talk about this because it's a a good one to study. It's complicated. Why a pope? Well, as I said earlier, the pope is, is a word that simply means papa. Uh, it's a term used for the bishop of any city. There were popes in the east too, in every church. So there's pope this, pope this, pope that. I essentially, technically, am pope of this church. Don't ever call me that. Don't need it. <laughs> bishop, <laughs> you, your greatness will work fine. No, just uh, <laughs> not at all. The barbarian invasions brought about a great upsurge in the pope's authority in the west. The east was safe under the emperor, but with all of these tribes coming into the west, coming into Rome, the barbarian invasions, now someone's got to take the lead. It's not an emperor. So the pope rises up. Who's going to do it? If it's in Rome, then it's going to be the church, the pastor of that church in Rome, the bishop, the papa, pope in Rome. The west, that is in Italy, became the guardian of what was left of that ancient civilization. So by default, this man begins to rise to the occasion whoever he might have been. They gained, Rome continued to gain prominence because, number one, it was the capital city of the empire. Uh, there was a prominent New Testament letter written to Rome by Apostle Paul, of course. And there was a large number of Christians there, around 30,000, it's believed. And the apostles Peter and Paul were supposedly buried there. Supposedly, there's no definitive proof that they were, but they were supposedly buried there. Therefore, this great city, this is where everything happened. This was important. So the pastor of that town is going to be the big daddy, Papa, Pope. Here's the picture of the Vatican there. In 381, we're going backwards a little bit. Prior to the the invasions, barbarian invasions, Theodosius, one of the emperors, he failed to invite Damasus, who was the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, to the Council of Constantinople. Remember the Council of Constantinople was kind of part two of the Council of Nicaea, trying to determine whether Jesus was actually uh, born of a woman. Was he actually fully human? In the sense we, in Council of Nicaea, we knew he's fully God. Council of Constantinople, was he also fully human? He doesn't invite this prominent bishop of Rome, which is interesting, Theodosius. Damasus responded by quoting Jesus in Matthew 16, 17 and 19, which says this. When Jesus told Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, you shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So, if you don't know any better, you quote this to somebody, wait a minute, Theodosius didn't invite me. Hey, he's telling him, I'm in charge. I'm in the line of Peter. You don't invite me, you don't have a a council. Now, as I've told you, as I've taught this passage through the years, I want you to note, when you look at this in the Greek text, the way it's done, when he says, you are Peter, he says, you are Petros. 
Petros means a little stone. Just imagine a little rock in your hand. You are Petros. You ever go to a mountainside and you pull up, you take up a stone, and you know that used to be connected to the mountain. It's a stone from the mountain. You are Petros, and upon this Petra, so Jesus is probably using his hands. You, Peter, are a little tiny stone, and upon this Petra, this huge mountain, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What does he mean? I'm going to build my church on you. They're his apostles. They're the ones that have the word of God. They're the ones that walk with Jesus. When I hold my Bible and you hold your Bible, we are reading the word of the apostles. This is the foundation of the church. God gave that to the apostles. This is what the church is built on, the word of God. Damasus is using it to his advantage, as do the popes today, through a terrible misunderstanding of scripture. But if it's a misunderstanding and we corrected it, and we have in the Protestant churches, uh, why doesn't the Roman church do it? Well, it doesn't work for him. There you go. You take power away from the Pope all of a sudden. Well, then what do we do? Well, we can't have a Pope, among other things. But Damasus pulls this card and lets everybody know, hey, I'm in the line of Peter. And Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. Since Peter died in Rome, every Pope after him was supposedly his successor. Not a blood successor, but someone chosen in the same vein as Peter was to replace that. Now, we don't even know, by the way, that Peter was ever in Rome. It is by tradition that he died there, but there's no proof of that. Yes, Stephen? So would it be more accurate to say I'll give you all? <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, I'll give you all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, there you go. Unfortunately, Jesus wasn't from Texas, so, you know, he didn't speak Texan. So I've listed some of the popes, or at least all the popes, at least from 385. Damasus reigned from 385 as a pope to 384. Um, Ursinus, Syracus, Anastasius, Innocent. That, that's a great one. If I'm going to take a name and I think real highly of myself, I'm going to call, just call me innocent. <laughs> so the next guy said, no, I'm going with Zosimus. Uh, Eulalius, Boniface I, Celestine I, Sixtus III, and then it comes down to Leo. And Leo is going to be this head honcho uh, after Damasus. It is written, at least today, the Roman Catholic Church speaks of 1,095 popes in all. Uh, they're not quite sure it changes because they're not quite sure who the first pope after Peter was, or the second pope after Peter was. Some say this, some say that. Um, no one knows. It wasn't being followed back then because no one believed in the first and second century that you had to follow in Peter's footsteps. And no one's even sure Peter was the first pope. So, Leo the Great. Who was Leo the First? If there was ever a papa in Rome, it was Leo, who was pope from 444 61. He said that he was the preeminent bishop because he followed in Peter's footsteps, taking his cue from Damasus and the quote from Matthew 16. He had confronted the invading tribesmen and he had won mercy for Rome, having faced Attila, the Hun, and uh, Gensaric, who was the leader of the Vandals, uh, who came in and they, they wanted more. He was able to keep them from terror, terrorizing everything, but uh, uh, he wasn't able to keep them from terrorizing everything, but he, he put some, some bit of, of halting to it. And the people loved him. Once again, hey, this guy has the power of God. And he told them that Rome was a city of God. Be careful as you tread on the city of God. The Eastern Church rejected Leo as Pope. So here he is over in the West doing the best he can to put aside or put a stop to the, to the Vandals and the, and the rest of the barbarians. And the Emperor in the East is a bit jealous of him. No, we don't need anyone over there in the West. So they rejected him as, as Pope, or at least as a Pope ha- having any great authority. After Leo, he was followed by Hillary, which is a man. 
Uh, and then just got to go through the names. Simplic- Simplicius, Felix the Third. He was a simple guy, priest guy. Uh, Galatius, uh, uh, Anastasius II, Symmachus, Lawrence. I like that. Lawrence is stuck in there. Hormizdus, John the First, Felix the Fourth, Boniface the uh, Second, Dioscor, John the Second. Agapetus, Silverius, Vigilus, Pelagius the first, different than Pelagius the heretic that had faced Augustine. Uh, Pelagius first, John the third, Benedict the first, Pelagius the second. You'll, you'll see some of their reigns overlap each other. That's because when the emperors in the east were weak, uh, the emperors would recognize an, one of the uh, would, would recognize a pope, and then others wouldn't. So another one would reign right alongside. So it can be very confusing. The point being is, it comes down after Leo. Uh, to Gregory the first. He's going to be, some believe that he was actually the first legitimate and true pope. Some say Leo, some say Gregory. Between Leo the first, who died in 461, and Gregory the first, who began to reign as pope in 59, he did not want to see it all. He did not want to be pope and tried to, uh, uh, tried to get out of town before they could make him pope, but uh, he was unsuccessful. But between the two, there were constant tensions between the emperor in the east and the pope in the west. Usually theological controversies, Arianism, paganism, this, that, and the other. When the Ostrogoths invaded in 489, they brought Arian Christianity with them. This put the papacy at odds with itself, a pope for the Ostrogoths and a pope for the rest. So the Ostrogoths liked Arian Christianity and they're living in the land. And so they have their own pope. And then Orthodox Christianity has its. Under Hormizdus, 514 to 523, the schism between the East, or with the East, did come to an end. Justinian, who was uh, one of the famous emperors at that time, he had a general named Belisarius who invaded Italy. So he went from the East back to the West, invaded Italy, and defeated the Ostrogoths, these Aryan Christians. The next few popes became puppets for Justinian and his empress Theodora, more Theodora than Justinian. She had most of the power. And then the Lombards invaded Italy, and Pelagius II paid them off to keep them out of town. Enter Gregory the Great. So when we're preserving the order of Rome, Bruce Shelley, historian, says this, when the barbarians destroyed the Roman Empire in the West, it was the Christian church that put together a new order called Europe. The church took the lead in, in rule by law, the pursuit of knowledge, and the expressions of culture. And they did this through Gregory the first. So Gregory the first would be uh, perhaps this incredible figure in the history of the world who preserved Christianity, preserved order in, in what would become Europe and began to lead these people. And he was a great theologian. And then sometimes he was just absolutely crazy. So as Gregory the great takes over as Pope, it was an epidemic that broke out in Rome. And these epidemics brought about hallucinations. Now, he was given to this idea that if you had a strange vision, your hallucination, and it was about God, he apparently believed them all. And that was the one thing that I don't understand, because he was a very intelligent man. Somebody had a, a, a vision of God playing football, and they didn't even know what football was. Hey, he would write it down as a, a vision from God. And so some of the strangest things you get around from this century, from the late 6th century, early 7th century, all the things that are written, they're just things you'd read about and go, wait a minute, what? It's miracles, people uh, getting this and losing that. And you, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know how that came to be. But this epidemic. I'm sorry, Carol. Were they on drugs? Might have been that they were just eating mushrooms, right? I don't know. It was more of a, of, of a one of the plagues. Um, not, not not yet the, the bubonic plague, but uh, that didn't come to the, to the 14th century. Uh, he organized city sanitation. 
the burial of the dead. Isn't that interesting? People weren't even burying their dead at this point. Feeding the hungry, burial, and he buried Pope Pelagius who preceded him. He was made Bishop of Rome against his will. He secured peace with the Lombards in Italy. He did not claim universal authority as Leo had. Seems like a humble guy. And he was instrumental in converting the Visigothic king, who was an Arian. He converted him to Orthodox Christianity. He sent Augustine, this is a different one, a man named Augustine to England as a missionary. And, and the story goes, and it can't be backed up, but I've heard it for years, I read it in every book, is that Gregory the Great saw a blonde-headed, blue-eyed little boy, and he thought, where are you from, boy? You are an angel. And it was said that he was from, he was one of the Angles of the North, and he, won, he said, you little, sorry little pagan, let's go convert your people to Christianity. Don't know if it happened, but uh, he sent Augustine to England um, to convert these peoples. He thought they were beautiful. He used his inheritance to establish monasteries. He was called servant to servants. He wrote Gregorian chants. Ever hear a Gregorian chant? He wrote them. <laughs> uh, maybe not all of them, but it was just that, that genre. He worshiped saints and relics. And you're going, everything seemed good up to that point. But it became normal to do that. Very typical is that people liked saying, we'll look at it. I've got a whole slide on it later, so, uh, but just note that. Uh, he leaned toward his own infallibility, which doesn't seem to fit what we've read previously, does it? He took uh, Augustine's idea of purgatory, and Augustine, St. Augustine, just had the idea of this intermediate state, and he made it a doctrine. So he turned it into full doctrine. Augustine just toyed with the idea of it. Um, Gregory made it a doctrine in the Catholic Church. He declared uh, Augustine an infallible teacher, meaning everything he said was right. Okay. Augustine probably wouldn't have appreciated that. And he accepted all simple stories as direct confirmation of the faith, as I said earlier. All simple stories. Very dangerous to do that. All simple stories. Uh, people will come especially of the charismatic persuasion. People have visions and they, they, they have dreams, visions during the day, strange dreams at night, and they try to interpret them. And they will call people like me just kind of rudimentary um, and fill, you can fill in the blank. I've been called uh, strange things and, and some, some horrible things, but one of them is just a, uh, a two-bit, toothless guy from Nazareth. Why? Not talking about Jesus, talking about me. Because I go to the Bible verse by verse, and I bring out what does the Bible say, what does it mean, what do you do with it? That's very elementary. But people think, no, 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 there's a deeper meaning, and you're not getting to it. Uh, this was brought about by Origen back in the third century. Uh, Origen said something along the lines, you know, for instance, if uh, uh, when Jesus walked to Emmaus, remember after Jesus was, was resurrected, he walked to Emmaus. It's a little town. Two of the disciples walked with him. They didn't recognize him. And you'll get things like, what is your Emmaus? You're going, wait, what is Emmaus in the Bible? It's a city. And it's a city Jesus was walking to. That's it. And yet, if you're looking at something deeper, if you're trying to find a deeper spiritual meaning, then you make Emmaus anything you want Emmaus to be. What is your Emmaus? What did you see? What did you encounter? In fact, the Catholic Church, and then it moved to the Methodist Church, now has the walk to Emmaus. Folks, be careful of that. Uh, some of you may have been on it and had a good time. Be careful of it. Its roots are not real good, and you're not getting Bible teaching. Uh, it, it's really more of a this kind of thing. And so when you have a vision, and that's why we're Bible believers. At Harvest Bible Church, we're a Bible church. So if your vision that you had last night or today, whenever it was, 
does not coincide with Scripture, then we believe your vision is not of God. We have to measure it against something. Otherwise, we can believe anything. And all the strange stories out there. And believe me, if you've ever gotten in a conversation with someone who had a vision, and they think they saw it, and they felt it right here, their heart went pitter-patter, uh, try arguing with that. You're, you're going to have as much success arguing with that as you will talking to that wall. People had a vision. They had a feeling. Don't tell me I didn't, okay? I'm not going to tell you you didn't, but I will challenge you on whether it was from God. Uh, a lot of people have strange experiences. And yeah, sometimes it's about drugs. In fact, that's why some people take drugs and listen to rock and roll. It makes them feel good. Strange things happen when you do that. Um, so when we accept all the simple stories of direct confirmation of the faith, a lot of them is going to contradict the Bible, in which case, why do we need the Bible? Gregory I seems to have uh, instigated this, or at least given permission for it. So is the Pope legitimate? Any, anything I put up here now is going to get me in all kinds of trouble, but is he legitimate? Uh, the idea of a Pope as a head of the church conflicts with the New Testament government. Local church has the final authority. Local church, elders in church. No Pope. It conflicts with the idea of Peter himself who, as we know, was terribly flawed and weak. It conflicts with Peter's view of himself when he calls himself in 1 Peter a humble elder. He doesn't say humble. He said, I am your fellow elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. The New Testament cites all prophets as having authority, not one. And calling Peter rock instead of Jesus uh, Peter was Petros. He was just a little stone. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is that rock foundation. So is he legitimate? No. No. The, the Pope, that's why you'll read that the guys from the, the, the Reformation, John Calvin, Martin Luther, uh, these guys loathe the Pope. The Pope was to them the Antichrist. I'm not making that up. If you read anything of John Calvin and, and Luther, they're constant. This is the Antichrist. He is the Antichrist. He stood against everything that Christianity was and hence their disdain for that uh, and the Reformation as it came about. So there were new opportunities for all of this, and it became what we would call missions. Uh, as all these people are coming down into the empire, opportunity for missions. Any of you hear of Ulfilus? How many of you heard of Ulfilus? Come on, be honest with me. Really, not one single person. Ulfilus, don't name your kid that. He died in 388. He spoke to the Visigoths. Uh, Patrick went to Ireland. Columba, Columba, I won't say Columbus myself. Columba went to Scotland to preach the gospel. Augustine, not him, is not Augustine. Augustine went to England. Boniface went to Germany. Clovis of the Merovingian dynasty was first of the French Christians. Clovis, terrible name. <laughs> he was from this uh, Merovian guy. He had a, um, a, guy, a, a descendant named Charles Martel, which means the hammer, Charles the hammer. He had a son named Pepin the Short short and he had a son named Charlemagne <laughs> Charlemagne so this Merovingian dynasty is very very strong and in, in the early church uh, at least in the mid in the middle ages church so uh, these are the people that went around spreading the gospel Ulfilus did a mission to the Goths to the Goths when the Huns began to move into Gothic territory Ulfilus got permission for his Gothic Christians to move first to Romania then inside the empire now watch him here, here they go You didn't know it was that quick. I mean, that's like 2,000 miles that quick. Ulfilus translated the Bible into Gothic. And he left out the books of Kings, which is interesting because he said the Goths were already too warlike. 
<laughs> and here's that translation. How about that? That's, that's an old, old English. Anastodens Iwagijalans Yeshush in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Christaus sunaus gutus sway gamelith. That is Christ, son of God, as written. So he's writing the Bible. He's putting the Bible in the Gothic language. Uh, the Christian state affairs in the West, you've got the Pope there in Rome. The Visigoths, who were Arian in Spain. The Lombards, who were Arians, uh, just uh, north of, of Italy. The Angles in England. The Franks in what is modern day France. And the Irish, who were actually Orthodox Christian. And so now you'll see the Pope and the Western Church had the task of converting these barbarians to Catholic Christianity. The, the Christians from the north come south, and the Christians from the south go north. And in between is their mission field, and they began to spread the gospel. Uh, the Christian missions in the west, the Angles, Franks, Lombards, Visigoths, Columba went to uh, England in, four, in 563. Columbianus went from England down to the Franks in 590. Uh, Augustine in 596 into England, Paulinus in 619, uh, Aden in 635, um, Columba there in AD 565, he went as a missionary from Ireland to Scotland and established a monastery at Iona in 565. Here's a picture of, uh, of that location. I don't know how old that is, uh, but it has uh, dates back there. A friend of mine took that picture when he was there. I wasn't uh, present. Uh, right there. Ireland, you know. Perhaps, yes. I mean, it was, uh, he took the gospel to Ireland and, and chased out. What did he chase out of Ireland? All the snakes, right? <laughs> yeah, leprechauns too. It could just be that he chased out all the unbelieving snakes. Uh, I don't mean literal snakes, but uh, yeah, it looks like that's, that's what happened. Uh, you know, as best we can ascertain. Uh, it's interesting to read this old literature and, and, what we have and by the way it's i'm not every history book is based on the previous history book and it all goes back to what little we have uh from what little exists and so uh, i can't speak with any degree of authority uh, about what exactly it was we do know the names and where they went and why they went to convert people to christ columbianus uh, went as a missionary from ireland to the franks in 590 and helped spread monasticism there. Monasticism we've seen as a good thing. Uh, Aden, monks from Iona went to northeastern England as missionaries to establish a monastery in Lindisfarne in 634 uh, by Aden. While, while these Irish missions were going on, Pope Gregory in Rome was planning to send missionaries to England. So this is all happening uh, kind of simultaneously. Gregory I sent a mission from Rome to England under the leadership of another Augustine who died in 604. He became the first Archbishop of Canterbury. How many of you know what the Archbishop of Canterbury even does? Anyone? <coughs> I mean, do you dare say, yeah, Connie, go ahead. He's not the head. The head of the Anglican Church is the queen. Now it's the king. But he is the chief bishop. He is the chief bishop. So, yeah, I always know that when Henry VIII started the church in England, he, the king, the queen, was the head of the church. Um, why? Because the pope wouldn't give him uh, a divorce. So if you're in charge, I'll just be in charge, give myself a divorce. How convenient. Archbishop of Canterbury became that uh, uh, long before Henry VIII, just the chief bishop in, uh, in England, and, and he reigns from Canterbury. Ethelbert, 
the king of Kent, which is just south of England, had a Christian wife named Bertha, who later converted him. They helped evangelize England. Bertha's Christian daughter, Ethelberger, <laughs> is given to the pagan king of Northumbria as a bride. The Northumbrians were converted to Christianity. This is beautiful. Strange names and all. God works through strange names. This is right around that time. This is uh, um, uh, Augustine, when Augustine goes there around, around 6, uh, uh, 610, 615-ish. Uh, in the 700s, English Christians took the gospel to the Saxon barbarians living east of Francia. So you see, uh, there's Spain down below. Franks. The English Christians and the Saxons were related genetically. Boniface, a missionary from England, was commissioned by the Pope as bishop to the barbarians, 672 to 6 or to 754. The Pope wrote letters to Charles Martel. Remember, I told you about him earlier, requesting him to protect and support Boniface's mission. And by the way, we'll get into Charles Martel and the Merovingian dynasty. I know you're dying to hear about them. Awesome dynasty, amazing stories. Uh, Martel did protect Boniface's mission, and he saw great success. A power challenge was one of the means Boniface used to refute the pagan gods. This is a great, a mighty preacher. He believes in Jesus full force. In one famous case, he chopped down a sacred oak right in front of all the pagans that revered it and built a church with it. And while they're waiting for him to die on the spot, he's building a church to Christ on it. Uh, don't you love that? Yeah. Great stories of the past. Powerful, bold men and women. Boniface discovered the church already existing among the Franks, but it was corrupt and it was in need of reform. Sounds like every church, right? He and the English missionaries now sought with the Pope's help and with the help of the Carolingians, we'll look at them too, to reform the debauched church in Francia. Boniface suffered martyrdom as a missionary to the Frisians in 754, uh, was killed uh, for his faith and for preaching the gospel as most good Christians of that day were. So another slide, another um a little more information on, as we answer this question week by week, where did the Roman Catholic Church come from? Um, the development of it. Prayers to the martyrs. As I told you earlier, Gregory the Great began to pray to the, the martyrs, those who were not quite dead but suffering for their faith and then later died. Uh, relic worship, the doctrine of the Pope, and the Apocrypha in the Bible of the Catholics today. So as we see this development, just a few things. Uh, praying to the martyrs, number one, in the days of the martyrs, Catholics would seek out martyrs while they were in jail to ask for their prayers. So it's just like going to jail for somebody to say, Boniface has been put in jail. He's about to die. This great man of God, Boniface, will you pray for me? We do that. Lance, will you pray for me? You're the pastor. Some people think I have this, this, this easy step to God that you don't have. That's hogwash. I, we, we all have in Christ, we have the same distance between us and God. And what does First Timothy 2, 5 say? There is one God and one mediator between God, the man Christ Jesus. No priest, no pastor. Just pray your prayers to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we say in Jesus' name. But in these days, they would go and ask people, will you pray for us? And we still do that. Nothing wrong with that, asking people to pray for you. That's while he was alive, yes. They believed that the prayers of the martyrs had special power with God because of the heroic obedience of the martyr while he's still alive still. It was a small step from that to believing that the martyr could continue to pray for you after he or she was dead. Small step. Hey, they're with Jesus. Jesus hears everything. 
He's overwhelmed with all the prayers of all the people praying to him. So Jesus, they believe, has distributed to these martyrs, these saints that have come to him, and now they're getting the prayers, they're hearing your prayers, and they're coming to him. That's what they believed then and now. Well, they believe the saints actually answer the prayers. Sure. In an omnipotent fashion. And give glory to the saints for doing so, right? Okay, you'd expect a great preacher to come out and say, stop. But the great preacher of the day, John Chrysostom, said this. Martyrs have great boldness, not merely during their life, yes, much more after their death. For they now bear the marks of martyrdom. And when they show these, they can persuade the king, notice the king in, all, in caps, to do anything. So even John Chrysostom was buying into this and promoting it. That comes about a little later. Uh, as this develops, someone comes along and says, you know what? Mary might be the top dog to do because she's his mama. Uh, so it'll come along, then doctrine of Mary, praying to Mary, and then Mary becoming completely sinless in her life. It all develops later. Next is the relics, and there's just a picture of some, some relics. Uh, you might have some relics in your home. Uh, <laughs> you might be a relic, frankly. <laughs> You have to be older than 86 to be a relic. (laughs) So people collected physical things associated with the martyrs, bits of their clothing, and especially parts of their dead bodies. They could get their ashes or bones, believing that these had the power to heal. They, They still think that. They still think it today. These physical remains are called relics. So beginning in the mid-4th century, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics started worshiping relics and praying to dead martyrs. Before this, it was illegal to raid a tomb or bring body parts into the city. After this, it won't be. So you've got the Edict of Milan, and you've got the mid, between the mid, uh, mid-4th century, there where the black line is, and it, it goes down some great men, Basil, Gregory Nazianzen, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine. Um, all of these men, this is kind of where it enters in. Uh, and here's kind of that, that black area. A hundred years later in the mid-5th century, prayers to the saints and veneration of relics was widespread throughout Christendom and continues to this day, especially if you're of the Greek Orthodox persuasion. So what are relics? Here's a picture up there. It's a dead guy. That's uh, Ambrose. I showed you that picture before. Uh, sometimes relics are entire bodies. We have already seen the bodies of St. Ambrose. And somebody asked me, that week, they said, who's the guy laying next to him? Said, smart aleck. Just a smart aleck. Had to go find. So it's uh, Gersavius, of course you realize that, uh, or Trevasius, I should say, and Protasius, uh, lying in a chapel under the altar in the Basilica Ambrosia in Milan. And these, these people have, have preserved the, their entire bodies. That's part of the relic. Because they were good and godly men. Uh, usually relics are just small fragments or even dust of what people may think is a human body. Or a piece of the cross. If you took all the, the pieces of the cross of Jesus. That are supposedly possessed all over the world. You'd have an entire forest. <laughs> they are kept in tiny ornate vessels. Called reliquaries. Or reliquaries. Um, bits of bodies were passed around. To spread the power. And here's Joe, Pope John Paul II. Who died in my lifetime. Relics are still being generated today. It's a small amount of Pope John Paul II's blood. So, hey, let's get uh, some of John Paul II's blood. John Paul II, his, his Savior was no doubt was one person. It was Mary. He loved Mary. 
In fact, he has a big M on his tomb, on his casket for Mary. No one promoted the, prom- uh, the worship of Mary, although he wouldn't have said it's a worship of Mary. It's a veneration of Mary, but yeah, it's worship. So, why does the Catholic Bible contain the Apocrypha? Well, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. We're looking at the, the Bible and how it came to be. And this is just real quick. I owe you 10 minutes, but I'm, we're going to get out quick. This timeline shows the approximate times that the books of the Old Testament were written in their Hebrew language. Did you get that? You can't quote them that quick, can you? And this just finishes that timeline. Uh, up to Malachi, around 430 B.C. Um... The Babylonian period, the Persian period, the Greek period, the Hasmonean period, and the Roman period. These are the periods uh, where the Jews were under these certain dominations. Now, the Hasmonean period was their own people. Uh, that's kind of when they had about 100 years of, of, uh, of their own freedom. Um, during this time, we may add time periods indicating that who was ruling the Jews. In the Greek era, the Jews spoke Greek, and many could no longer read Hebrew. Uh, so the books of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament were translated into Greek because of them. The Jews continue to write religious books in Greek. Some of the major ones are shown here in red. So you've got, I'll come back. You've got Tobit, Syrac, 1st and 2nd Esdras, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Judith, Baruch, the Wisdom of Solomon, um, Bell and the Dragons, Susanna. There's a bunch of other books in the what's called the, the Apocrypha. Um, so the Septuagint, over time, the Greek, all the Greek language or religious documents were collected and were put called the Septuagint, which contains the Apocrypha. So you take, take the Hebrew Old Testament and Hebrew, translate it into Greek, take the Greek written in the Apocrypha, put it all together, and this becomes part of the Septuagint. When the, I'm sorry? Is it supposed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit? It is, and, and, the, and the distinctions are made here in just a minute. Yeah, I want to show you that. You're, you're, you're right. It's, it, we know the Bible is inspired. The question is, is, are those books inspired? When Christians in the Western Roman Empire, that's in Rome, made translations of the Old Testament, they could not read Hebrew, so they translated from the Greek Septuagint. So the Latin translations of the Old Testament included the apocryphal books since they translated from the Septuagint, which is Greek. Now they put it in Latin. If you grew up Catholic, you know about the Latin Vulgate. You know about a Latin Mass. One Catholic Latin version, Damasus, Bishop of Rome, did not like the fact that there were many different old Latin translations. So he commissioned Jerome, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, to make one new translation that everyone could use, the Latin Vulgate. Since Jerome lived in Bethlehem, he knew Hebrew, he knew some of the Jews, and, and he knew that the Jews did not consider the Apocrypha to be Scripture. When he translated the Old Testament into Latin, from Hebrew into Latin, he did so from Hebrew, not from the Greek Septuagint. Since the apocryphal books were not written in Hebrew, the Old Testament he translated had the same 39 books uh, as the Jews. Jerome also translated the apocryphal books from Greek into Latin. So he did it anyway. He made a distinction between them and the inspired books. Note that. In the Latin Vulgate, there is a distinction that Jerome made between the inspired books of God and the apocrypha. He recommended that they be read for edification, but not as Holy Scripture. Jerome After listing the 39 books of the Old Testament, he says this, whatever falls outside these must be set apart among the Apocrypha. The 39 books are the inspired books of the Bible, as Karen said. He included Apocryphal books in the Latin Vulgate saying this, lest lest among the uninstructed we should seem to have lopped off a considerable part of the volume. In other words, he didn't want an argument. Look, there's people out there that are uninstructed. They don't know. They're going to think we just lopped off a bunch. We'll stick it in there and I don't have to deal with it. Too many emails he was getting back then. The Catholic Bible, which is the Latin Vulgate, has had the Apocrypha in it 
to this day. Athanasius says this, Bishop of Alexandria, after listing the 39 books of our Old Testament, he made the same distinction. He said, there are other books outside of these which are not indeed included in the canon, uh, but have been appointed from the time of the fathers to be read. While the former are included in the canon, the latter are read in the church. Athanasius considered the apocryphal books good to be read, but not scripture. And then Martin Luther Uh, When he translated the Bible into German in the 1500s, he started the Protestant practice of separating the apocryphal books from the rest of the Old Testament. Later, Calvinists eliminated the apocrypha altogether. And and I'll be done there. Um, It's a lot of information. I know it. A lot of things. You see how the Roman Catholic Church is growing. And I'm going to show you each week how it continues to grow. Just get this. Barbarian invasions in the West. It completely changed the western part of the empire. You're going to have over time a different empire here than you have over here. Uh, There's going to be a breakdown. This is Rome. This is not barbarian peoples. You and I came from most of these peoples. Uh, Somewhere or another, that's where we come from. So praise God for them and the, the missions that went out to speak to them. And then you see as the Roman Catholic Church begins to evolve, we'll bring it all together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you again for our time together. We offer it to you as worship in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 